course, a lot had happened by the time we get to Jesus on the cross. He had been probably awake for around 24 hours. He'd had Passover with his disciples. They sang a hymn and went out, and we looked at scriptures about that this last night from Psalm 118. And uh, going to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus praying uh, with his disciples near, some closer than others, but all sleeping except for Jesus. And we know that three times he prayed for the Father to take this cup from him, but he said, if it is not possible, let your will be done. And then he was arrested there in the garden, and and there at the garden began the mistreatment of Jesus as he was mocked and beaten by those who had arrested him there in the court. And we learn about that in Luke 22, that they struck him on the face. One of the Gospels tells us that they covered his face, so he didn't even know when a strike was coming, which makes it more intense. They mocked him, they spit upon him. He stood then in trials by night. They were not legal trials, but they were trials by night with the religious rulers, two of them during the night and one in the morning to try to make it look like it was some kind of legal trial that was going on. And then he was sent to Pilate because the Jews had no ability, not legally as far as the Romans were concerned. And God was working all of this out. He worked it out that in this moment in history, all the pieces of the puzzle would come together. If the Jews were to put someone to death, they would have stoned him. But just a few years earlier, the Romans took away the right of the Jews to deal with capital punishment. They said, if you're going to kill someone, it's got to come through us. And when that happened, tradition says the Jews went out into the streets crying out and said the word of God has failed because the Bible tells us that in the prophecy from Jacob to Judah, talking about Shiloh coming, that the scepter and the lawgiver would not depart from Israel until Shiloh comes. And so they saw, even though the Romans were ruling over them, and they had a Herod the Great on the throne, a pagan king ruling in their district, but he acted more like a governor than a, well, he acted like a king, but he had the authority of a very influential governor. So he had a Edomite ruling over them in their Jerusalem proper, and Rome ruling over them ultimately in that sense. And so they cried out when they took away the right of capital punishment. They cried out saying the law of God has failed because the scepter will not depart and the lawgiver will not depart from Israel until Shiloh comes. What they did not know is that Jesus had already been born at that time. Shiloh was there. 
They did not know that yet. But if the Jews had their way, they would have stoned him, and they tried early on in his ministry. But this is all in God's timing, because he had three trials, two by night, one in the early morning by the religious rulers of Israel. They condemned him to be put to death, saying he was worthy of death, but they had no right to commit anyone or to take anyone out and stone them any longer. So they had to bring him to Pilate. And so when it says that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, if the Jews, and I I even heard one of my bosses who was from Germany, he was from Germany, lived here, and I worked for him for a number of years. And it was probably around Easter where I'd never personally heard someone call the Jews Christ killers. And uh, he did. And if they would have, in their own authority, stoned Jesus, then it would have been a right application of that. But Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, for the Jews and the Gentiles, and thus he was put to death and condemned to death both by the Jews and the Gentiles. And so he stood before Pilate. Pilate knew what was going on. He knew that, The religious rulers of Israel were jealous of Jesus. He even declared that I find no fault in this man. His wife came to him and told him that I've suffered many things today in a dream, have nothing to do with that righteous man. So he already knew he didn't have any guilt. Then his wife comes and says, stay away from this one, honey. And tradition says that within 10 years, Pilate would take his own life. So it would cost him, even though he would wash his hands and before the people say, I am innocent of this man's blood. He was not, but neither are we. When Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, he was dying for you and me as well. So it was a custom for Pilate to release one prisoner during the Passover feast. And he attempted to get Jesus released through this custom. He knew what was going on. He knew it was because of envy that they had brought Jesus to Pilate. And so I think he picked, he probably said to one of his aides, go get the worst prisoner that we have. Someone that even the Jews hate. And he was, the Bible tells us he was an insurrectionist and also a murderer, Barabbas. And Pilate stood Barabbas alongside Jesus and he asked who should be released. And the people being prodded by the religious rulers cried out for Barabbas to be released. When that didn't work, he had Jesus scourged. And so we get into that the cat of nine tails. Um, Jewish custom for the whipping of someone, according to the Jewish law, 40 stripes. And if you would go over that, judgment would come upon the one who was doing the beating. So it became tradition for the Jews to, in case somebody lost count, 39 stripes. 
So it was always 40 minus 1. Well, if cat of nine tails, it's got nine lashes at the end of that whip. And so you can multiply the 39 times 9, and his body was torn and ripped. But the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, and it also tells us in, I believe it's in 1 Peter, that it's by his stripes that we are healed. And so there was even a purpose as far as prophecy is concerned for the stripes that Jesus received. So he had him scourged and he thought maybe they they would release him because of that, have pity saying the punishment is enough, but it wasn't. They cried out in Luke 23, 21, when he said, what should I do with him? They shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And so they led him away and we pick up in verse 26. They led him away and they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross on which he might bear it after Jesus. So it was customary for the Romans. Um, we read in Scripture that they nailed his accusation over the cross. Well, the accused prisoner would carry that accusation. And so everybody would know why this person was being put to death. And we'll read the accusation as we continue on. So either someone leading before Jesus, carrying the accusation, Jesus carrying the accusation, but a man, Simeon, was took into service by the Romans to carry the wooden beam for Jesus and he was pressed into service. It's something that Jesus said. I mean, they had a, a standing law that a Roman soldier could tell anyone that you have to carry my gear for a mile. And so all over Israel, they had mile markers, just like we have them on the highways. Why? Because they didn't want to go more than a mile. But if they were told by a Roman soldier that they had to do it, they had to do it. Jesus said in Matthew 5:41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Even the soldier would watch the mile marker go by and wonder, what's this guy doing? Why is he still carrying it? Why did he go too? But I've already said that he's at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been up for, by the time he goes to the cross, at least 24 hours or more. He prayed until he his sweat mingled with blood in the garden. Once he was arrested, they began to beat on him. He was scourged not only by uh, the religious rulers and those their security that they had, but he was scourged by Pilate. He would be mocked and beaten, as we'll see by Herod in a moment. And it helps us to understand, or maybe Herod's already done at this point in verse 26, but um, it helps us understand why physically he was so beaten down 
that he didn't carry his own beam, his own cross. But it doesn't surprise me because I think for Simon it was a life-changing experience. I mean, he may have been angry that he had to carry this cross, this beam, for this guy who is being crucified. He, he said, I came to Israel to celebrate Passover. Why are you making me do this? But Mark tells us when he tells of this, and all four Gospels tell of Simon, he says that his son's names are Alexander and Rufus, as if the whole church knows who Alexander and Rufus are. And so it could be they might know Alexander and Rufus because for Simon, he had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ on that day. Simon bore the weight of that wooden beam, but we need to remember that Jesus bore a much greater weight, the sins of the world. Here it is in 1 Peter 2, 24, For he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. So 27 through 28, it tells us about the women who had followed Jesus, that they were there. Uh, one of the other gospel writers tells us that they were watching the events from, the, from afar. Uh, here they're, they're nearby as he's making his way to the cross, and Jesus speaks to them and says in verse 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourself and for your children. And he went on to say, for indeed, days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? So we were reading totally from Luke 23:27 through 31. They were weeping for Jesus, but Jesus prophetically was saying that there's a day coming. And he was speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem that happened um, in A.D. 70. And the temple was destroyed. And, and that was prophecy being fulfilled by Jesus because that same week the disciples were bragging to Jesus about the beauty of the temple and Jesus said to the disciples, you see these stone here? Not one stone will be left standing upon another. And if you go to Israel today, they've dug down to the time of Christ on the southern portion of the Temple Mount. And you can see the stones that they, the Romans uh, tumbled over Temple Mount. And it's a pretty far drop at that point. Um, so prophecy being fulfilled as even the temple was smashed to the ground. Now, historically, you read from Josephus, who is a Jewish man that recorded the history of the Jews, but he was on, he was embedded, he was like a reporter embedded with Titus. He was embedded with the Romans, but he was a Jewish man reporting on what was happening. So he was there in the siege and he said that Titus did not want the temple be, to be destroyed. He wanted it to stand as a testament 
to the other nations of their power. But just a day, maybe two days prior, the Jews set up a kind of a guerrilla warfare. They trapped Romans and killed them. And when the Romans came through that wall, it was a bloodbath. So much so that they said the blood ran down the steps of the temple because the Jews took refuge, a last refuge in the temple. And one of the soldiers threw a flaming spear uh, through one of the windows of the temple. It hit the tapestry and it began to burn. And historically, they say the gold that was in the temple began to melt. And as it melted, it went into the cracks of the stone and so the Jews or the Romans wanted the gold. So how do you get it? You tear it down. And so they tore it down. Titus didn't want it. We already learned Pilate didn't want to see Jesus put to death. Titus historically didn't want the temple destroyed, but both things were in fulfillment of prophecy. So he was hung on the cross, 32 and 33, and there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, and there they crucified him, and the criminals on one on the right hand and the other on the left. And Jesus was hung between two thieves, also a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53:12 says he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so even in those he was crucified with was fulfilling prophecy. In Israel today, you go to the garden tomb. They believe that this is the tomb where Jesus, was, his body was laid. As far as an archaeological discovery, the Israel uh, blew it because someone who owned originally owned the property where the garden tomb is today, he decided that this old cave that was on his property, he would clean it out and use it for storage. And so he began cleaning it out, and he contacted the authorities in Israel, and I said, he said, I think we, we really have something here. But by the time they showed up, he was using it for storage. So if they did really have something there, um, they lost that opportunity. But um, it is, has, still has, there's no stone any longer, but the slot is there before the doorway. It's a two-chamber uh, cave. It's been hewn out of the rock. It's near Calvary. It's near the cross uh, where they believe he was crucified. And because they called it not only Calvary, but the place of the skull. And you can still see that skull-like features in the rock there today. They are outside of the wall of Jerusalem proper. So the old wall, it's all outside of that. And so it fits the scriptural narrative and there in that tomb, there is an inscription that uh, something like buried where my Lord was buried. And so there might be good evidence that this is the actual garden tomb. But I bring all that up because 
That area is the high point in Jerusalem. The Temple Mount wasn't the highest point, but where the cross was, that's the highest point. And this is just a personal theory of mine, but when Abraham was told by God to take your son, your only son, and go to the mountain that I will show you, and he went on a three-day journey, and there he built an offer to alter built an altar to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. It was customary for them to offer the sacrifices on the high point of the mountain. And uh, it could be that this is the same place where Jesus, where God gave his only son for the sins of the world. So that's a theory of mine. You can explore it yourself, but I think, I'm never surprised by God's details in the Bible. And, you know, I try to put things together. And that's just something that it would make sense to me if that was the place, because it's the highest place, that that was the place where Jesus was actually crucified. So there on the cross, he begins what would be the seven cries of the cross, Father, forgive them, verse 34, for they do not know what they do. And so I'm going to skip reading here and just kind of catch us up on the what's going on. He's hung on the cross. He cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And the people there at that time, the soldiers are now casting lots for his clothing. The common people are staring at him. The Israel's leaders are on the wall, it tells us, and mocking him over the wall, saying that he saved others, but him he cannot save. If he is the Christ, the chosen of God, then let God save him. The soldiers also joined in on the mocking. They offered him sour wine. And while they cried out to him to save himself, They put the accusation, that's in verse 38, written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. This is the king of the Jews that made the religious rulers angry because they wanted Pilate to say that he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what is written is written. But it was written for all the world to see. And as all that was going on, Jesus, in the first cry of the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It's because of Jesus' death that the Father's forgiveness is available to us today, to this day. Then one of the criminals, verse 39, who, who were hanged, blasphemed him saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked the other thief. Verse 40, do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, and we receive our due rewards for our deeds. They were so bad that this thief said crucifixion is what we deserve. I don't know if you know of too many people that when they're receiving capital punishment, saying, I deserve this. He did. Then Jesus, the Lord, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
So in one of the other Gospels, it tells us that both the thieves mocked Jesus, but they hung on the cross for quite a while. And there was some turning point in this one man's heart where he said these words to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The word of God tells us that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the spirit was doing a work in this thief's heart. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So I have a theory that why would the thieves, you know, you go through this account for me annually, if not more, but you read through the four Gospels and you read the prophecies concerning this and I've been around here for a little while, so I've uh, had a bit of time to think about these things. But I, I would think they're all dying on the cross. Why would they mock Jesus? I think personally, maybe originally to deflect. Everybody's staring. Everybody's gawking. And everybody on the ground, the religious rulers, they're all making fun of Jesus. And maybe if we make fun of Jesus, as idiotic as that might sound, you're all dying on a cross. Maybe everybody will pay attention to the guy in the middle and not pay attention to us. I think they were just trying to deflect the suffering that they were going through, the shame that they had, and to put it on Jesus. The two thieves attempted to deflect that shame, their sins upon Jesus. But in reality, he bore all our sins upon that tree. As we read from 1 Peter 2.24, that he bore our sins in his own body on that tree. And the thieves, they blasphemed, but one repented. And the Lord said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he found grace even Though he said, we deserve to be here, he found life everlasting while dying on the cross. It just proves in Romans 5.20 that where the law entered, it entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And there is no better deathbed confession than that of the thief on the cross Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord responding, today you'll be with me in paradise. And there was no works of repentance that he could possibly do. He didn't ask like the rich young ruler, what good thing must I do to enter into the kingdom of God? He knew he hadn't done good things. It was only a reliance upon the work of Jesus Christ that provided that salvation for him. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, even in their dying hours. The Lord can save. So there was darkness at noonday, verse 44. It was about the sixth hour. Darkness over the whole earth until the ninth hour. Mark tells us that the crucifixion began at the third hour, is about 9 a.m. And so you're dealing with the different Gospels going from Roman time to uh, the Hebrew time. 
And so basically we have about six hours total that he was on the cross, beginning early in the morning. Mark tells us that there was darkness over the whole land. And uh, this caused the centurion to cry out, verse 47, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. So even this, in prophecy, Amos 8, 9, it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the earth in broad daylight. When the sun was darkened, verse 45, the veil of the temple torn in two. So both Mark and Matthew tell us of this, of the veil being torn as well from top to bottom. So Luke just tells us the veil was torn. Matthew and Mark tells us it tore down from the top to the bottom. And this was a, a it's not a curtain that we hang in our our houses to cover our windows. They say that this veil was somewhat like maybe five inches thick. It's nothing easy that could be torn. And it tore, I believe, in the sense of God revealing to the people that the old covenant had been fulfilled through the work of Jesus on the cross, that there was a new way for salvation or righteousness for the people. In fact, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 tells us, Brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new way, a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, um, Jesus became that veil for us through his flesh. And then Jesus cried out, verse 46, Father, forgive them. Our Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. And so in his dying breath, he committed his spirit into the hands of the ever faithful Father. Have you likewise committed your life to Jesus? When this happened, the centurion soldier, I already read this, verse 47, saw all these things that had taken place, especially, I would say, the last three hours with darkness, the, you know, I, the veil of the temple, maybe the cry of the people, the sun being darkened. He says, certainly this was a righteous man. The whole crowd seeing the sight, seeing what had been done, they beat their breast and returned, returned back to wherever they lived. But they were so distraught that they were beating their breast. His acquaintances, the women, the disciples, those who followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance. They watched these things. So Luke gives us some of the sayings of the cross. I'm going to run through all seven of them for you right now. It begins with Luke. Luke 23:34. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Later on, Luke 30, 23, 44, telling the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. 
And then in John 19:26 and 27, speaking to John concerning his mother Mary, and speaking to Mary as well concerning John, Jesus said, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And John tells us from that hour, the disciple took Mary in. He took care of her. And so it was really a passing uh, the responsibility of his mother to one of his disciples. So that's number three. Number four, Jesus cried out in Matthew and Mark, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46, also found in Mark 15, 34. In John 19, 28, it tells us as he drew near his death that he cried out, I thirst. And then number seven, or number six, John 19, 30, it is finished. Tetelestai is the Greek word. It means that it's complete. He completed his mission. And then lastly, number seven, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So the people were beating their breasts, the centurion soldier saying, truly this was a righteous man. Matthew tells us that he said this was the son of God. His friends, his acquaintances, those who followed him were standing afar off. And even that is prophecy. In Psalm 38:11, my loved ones, my friends stand aloof from my plague and my relatives stand afar off. And after Jesus's resurrection, we'll look at this on Sunday, he would rebuke two brothers who were walking on the road to Emmaus, saying to them, O foolish one, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. See, there's something that the suffering Messiah was difficult for the Jews to understand because they were being taught by their rabbis that the Messiah was coming and they were going to get rid of the Roman scourge from their country, that the Messiah was going to set up their kingdom upon the earth. And I say this often from the pulpit, but they were looking for the second coming Messiah and they didn't know or understand about the first coming Messiah, the necessity that he had to suffer and had to die. And so there was a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Luke doesn't tell us. Well, it does. A man named Joseph. He is from Arimathea uh, in verse 51. And he was a Jew who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. He went to Pilate. He was on the Sanhedrin court. He was a council member. So he had authority. He went to Pilate. He asked for the body. Pilate uh, tells us that uh, it tells us in John's gospel that Pilate was surprised that Jesus had died already. And they had to confirm that he was actually dead. But Luke just tells us that he received permission. He took the body, he wrapped it in linen, laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever been lain before. And it was the day of preparation as the Sabbath drew near. And so this was, it was Passover. And so normally Romans, they would crucify, they would leave the people hanging there. I don't think there'd be a better deterrent of crime to see dead people hanging around in town. 
saying if you break the law, that's going to be you. In fact, I could see, I mean, we can't even visualize that. I guess you get numb to it. Uh, We went to Israel and uh, all the soldiers, whether they were dressed in uniform or not, carried their rifles um, because if the rifle got stolen, they would go to jail for one year, so they didn't let it out of their sight. So all over Israel, we were accustomed, we got accustomed to it really quick, that people were walking around with guns, open carry by the soldiers. You kind of get used to it. Made us feel safe while we were there. But Joseph of Arimathea, also Nicodemus, helping them. They brought a hundred pounds of ointment from the other gospels. We learned this. But it was Passover, and so normally the Jews would just let the bodies hang there, but they were uh, there was difficulties going on between Rome and um, the Romans would let the body hang there. There was difficulty going on between the two, and so the bodies had to come down that night. But that too was scripture because if anyone is hung on the tree, he had to be buried that same night. And Jesus, even being buried in a borrowed tomb, it says in Isaiah 53, 9, they made his grave with the wicked, the two thieves on the cross, but with the rich at his death being buried in a rich man's tomb because he had done no violence, nor was deceit in his mouth. And so we close out and we'll pick up kind of right here on Sunday morning. The women who followed, they watched from afar. They observed the guys, Joseph and Nicodemus, burying, quickly burying the body of Jesus. I don't know how quickly you can bury a body with a hundred pounds of ointment and wrapping his body. But whatever they did, Mary Magdalene, uh, Joanna, and the other women, they saw it and said, not good enough. We're coming back and we're going to do it better. A couple of years ago, I was putting flowers out, changing out the flowers. It's, It's a passion of lilies. My lily, lily, to, and even last week, we need the Easter lilies out. And so one year, I'm doing it with two of my grandsons. And it's like, how does it look? And it's like, well, you could do this and that. And it's like, it doesn't matter. Lily's going to straighten them out when she gets here. I don't have to mess with it anymore. They're there. She'll fix it. It may have been at Christmas we were doing that. But I know my lily. And these ladies, similar, were going to return. And so they went back and they prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath day according to the commandment. And so that closes out the account from Luke's gospel. And uh, I want to just, before we receive communion, I want to talk about it briefly and just read through from Luke's gospel, since we're here in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus serving communion to his own disciples. We'll read it from Luke 22, and then we'll go into the remainder of our service. 
So there's a table in the back. This is unique to me. I've explained this maybe annually, but um, years ago I was an interim pastor at a church in Zion that had a balcony, um, and I thought it would be so cool on a Good Friday that if we had 12 guys dressed in costume, serving communion throughout the day, just recreating for families to come and receive communion in the upper room. They had a balcony, so it works. Um, I just thought that would be cool. It never happened, but it never left my mind. And so the first Easter I was here as your pastor, I took one of the kids' table from downstairs. I sawed the legs down that it could go really low. As in Israel, they didn't sit in chairs in the times, time of Christ, but they lounged on pillows and reclined around their tables. But I have chairs back there if someone needs, needs them. But uh, it's a low table. There's some, some of the foods that they would have had from Israel, and not all the food, of course, but some of that. I made bread for us today that will break and serve each family as you come back to the table. And when you come back to the table, besides serving you communion, um, I will take your hands and we'll join up and pray for you guys. And if anyone wants to be anointed with oil and to be prayed over in that way, just ask me. You have to ask. Um, And I'll do that for you as well. If you do kneel down by the table, it's wobbly. So don't use it to kneel down or to get up, or you may have that table on top of you, and it would really ruin everything. And uh, I know personally, the older I get, I like to use things to kneel down and to get up with, but not that table. So that's just a FYI warning. Let's try to keep things intact on top of the table and not on top of you. And when we serve communion, we'll do it one family at a time. I've always served my family first. And then from there on, while Dave is leading us in worship, I don't know how you're working out the music tonight, but um, as my family leaves, just look around and the next family Uh, can come back to the table and we'll serve communion for you. And so we'll do it one at a time. And so I'm going to read from Luke 22, and then we'll continue on in our service. Picking up in verse 14, And when the hour had come, they sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. And he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then when he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup. And after supper, there's actually four cups in the Passover meal. And so we're reading about two of them in this passage. But this is the cup that's important for us. After supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goes, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then he began, they began to question among themselves which of them would do this thing. And so, Father, we thank you for this evening you've given us to come and to worship together. And I pray, Father, that you would bless us now. Uh, this is um, truly in my heart, this passage from Luke where Jesus said to his disciples, I have a similar feeling about this evening with fervent desire. I have desired to share this meal with you. Lord, I look forward to this evening because You've allowed it to make it a special evening for us here at this church. It is unique to this church, and we thank you for it, Lord. And I pray, Father, that you would bless us now as we gather family by family, or friends and family, as they gather around the table, and as we receive communion tonight. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.